May those who say to me, aha, aha, turn back because of their shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. This is the word of the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship your holy name. Bless the Lord, oh my soul.
Uh, well, today, tonight, we get to talk about one of those things we just sang about. One of these wonderful reasons we praise the Lord. You know, today we celebrate our Harvest Festival, which is traditionally a time of thankfulness, right? A time of thanking God for all of his provision. This is why we give to those who are in need, both here and overseas. This is why we give tithes and offerings. This is why we give with our work and our service. And tonight's passage is a wonderful reminder of that. And so if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, if not, it will be on the screen. Um, you may want to keep your Bible open to reference it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 18 is our New Testament reading for this evening. And Paul writes this. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, according to the Lord's word. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So some of you may recognize this passage. Uh, this is one of those real famous ones. Um, and, and I want to talk about this, what this passage means, at least what I think it means and what I take from this passage. You know, many of us think of the word rapture. Many of us think of the word second coming, right? Um, how many of you guys, just honestly, and, and, and on Zoom, I wish I could see your hands too. How many of you guys know what book this is by the cover? Anyone? Left Behind? Has anyone ever heard of these books? Anyone read these books? Right, so in the U.S., these were a huge deal. Um, I remember, gosh, I don't know what year it came out, early 2000s, late 90s, and this was a really big deal. These are novels about the end times, and the whole storyline is that essentially Jesus comes back, and the world goes into chaos because there's like piles of clothes all over the place, and cars are crashing into each other, and planes are crashing out of the sky because Jesus comes back, and like pilots disappear, and all of these things happen. Um, stuff like this, I think, is really interesting because they're not bad books, actually. It's, it's a decent story and a decent novel. Really entertaining if you ever want to read it. But for me, I remember reading this and thinking, oh, this is what's going to happen. I remember being a teenager and thinking, oh, this is it. This is how it's going down. 
right? And, and whether it's this or other things, you know, in, in fact, a lot of people really want to know when and how these things are going to take place, right? I mean, many of us have seen, I get questions like this as a pastor all the time, you know, and, and, and people want to know, when is Jesus coming back? What's it going to look like? You know, by the way, that's not uncommon. Even the disciples wanted to know, right? And Jesus said, well, I don't even really know, so you're going to have to wait. And, and I actually looked this up just because I find these predictions great when someone says, Jesus is coming back, and then it doesn't happen. Um, throughout history, if you just, and honestly, this is what I did. I just Googled rapture, went to the Wikipedia page reading about all these things about Jesus Christ returning, and here are some of the highlights. Uh, in 1844, a Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller predicted that Jesus Christ would return between the 21st of March, uh, 1843, and the 21st of March, 1844, and then when it didn't happen, revised his prediction to one year later, saying he miscalculated, you know, uh, never happened. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, maybe you've had them knock on your door or given you a piece of paper somewhere around town. In 1914, 1918, and 1925, uh, the Jehovah's Witness Church um, predicted the coming of Jesus, never happened. In 1978, you may have heard of a church called Calvary Chapel. It's actually a good church. There's great churches, Bible-believing churches around the world. The founder of Calvary Chapel predicted that Christ would return in 1981. Did not happen. We're still here. Uh, 88, another guy. Uh, actually, this is interesting. An engineer for NASA, like a, an engineer who worked for NASA doing all these calculations, came up with some formula from the Bible of all these numbers and said, oh, yes, Jesus Christ is going to come back in 1988. Didn't happen. So on and so on and so on. And these things have happened over and over and over. And yet we're still here. We are still here wondering, when's this going to happen? What's it going to look like? Even this week, and this is not a joke. I'll show you the email if you really want. Even this week, two days ago, I got an email. And my wife, Jenna, can tell you this. I was in the other room, and I just said, like, full volume from the living room. She was in the kitchen and heard me, oh, awesome. And she came in and said, what was so awesome? And I said, I got an email today from a random person claiming that Jesus was returning, that coronavirus, coronavirus was the first sign of the apocalypse, and the world was ending, and that everyone needs to repent. And this guy claimed to be one of the two witnesses from Revelation chapter 11. And I thought, wow, i got to get to know this guy, right? <laughs> Why do we want to know this stuff so bad? Let me be clear first. Listen, Jesus did ascend into the heavenly realms. Jesus did, Scripture tells us, ascend to the right hand of God. Jesus does also tell us, and we believe, that Christ will return. These things are not debated among Christian orthodoxy, right? But, but all of these other things we think about are theories. All of these things, people try to pinpoint it and look through all these numbers and they're like, oh no, there's this secret code of numbers through the Bible and, and I can figure out what date Jesus is going to, oh no, I miscalculated, really, it's going to be the next month. We just don't know. We believe it will happen. Scripture tells us Christ will return. But as, as, as entertaining as the Left Behind books can be, I don't think it's going to happen with just a bunch of piles of clothes lying around and people just disappearing into the air. I highly doubt that will happen, and let me explain why. I want to look at a couple of scriptures that give us a little bit more context and then look at this passage after that. See, Revelation 21, we sang about it a little bit in that song we sang, tells us there will be a restored creation, right? 
And Revelation 8, or excuse me, Romans 8, which we talked about a few weeks ago, talks about there will be a new birth, right? That all of creation is in birth pains. And so it's not that the earth will be destroyed, but there will be a renewal. There will be a new creation, like a new birth, Paul tells us in Romans 8. So we know something is coming. We know there's a big change coming. Colossians 3, 4 tells us that when Christ does return to the earth, as he promised in the Gospels, that we too will appear with him. Sorry, i got to adjust the microphone. That we too will appear with him. So we know from this passage we read, Colossians and other passages, that when Christ does return, the dead will rise and you and I, those who claim Jesus Christ as our Savior, will be with him. This is the same thing Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Paul explains this to the Philippian church. He also explains it to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51, he says this to the Corinthian church. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, the same word in our text for the dead. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be imperishable, and we will be changed. So Paul says this to the Roman church, the Philippian church, the Thessalonian church we read tonight, the Corinthian church. Paul is not teaching some new doctrine only to this church in Thessaloniki, but rather this is a, a consistent teaching he has been teaching all across his travels, all across his missionary journeys. He is trying to remind the church that Christ will return. He was reminding the church that Christ died for them, that Christ rose from the dead, that Christ rose to the right hand of God the Father, and that Christ will return. But here in our passage tonight, Christ, or Paul uses language that he hasn't used in other places, and this leads to a lot of confusion. In fact, N.T. Wright, some of you guys know him and have read his things, N.T. Wright says that Paul used metaphors here that he didn't really expect people to take to the lengths that they've taken to today. See, some theologians believe that the, the things Paul is talking about here are metaphors from the Old Testament. Let me give you an example of what we're talking about. What metaphors might Paul be referencing? Well, first, um, a trumpet sound, it says, will announce the coming of Christ, right? It says so very clearly. For the Lord will come down to heaven with a loud command and the trumpet call of God. Well, this is something that is familiar in Scripture. Paul may be drawing from Moses in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 19... It says that on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled and then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. Isn't that interesting? So in the Old Testament, when it preceded the people of Israel to go and be with God, there was a loud trumpet blast. Maybe Paul is talking about this and sort of drawing a, par a, a, a parallel. Right? Paul also uses language in this passage similar to the prophecies in Daniel chapter 7. Right? And this is just another contextual thing where Daniel uses language very, very similarly like this when it talks about the Son of Man, who we know to be Christ, the Messiah, coming in the clouds to meet the people in the vision in Daniel chapter 7. Isn't that interesting? So Paul could be Paul could be in our passage tonight drawing on metaphors from the Old Testament. Paul was trained as a Pharisee, and we know he would be very familiar with the Old Testament. And yet, on the other side, some scholars really think this is a completely literal explanation. Right? Some scholars I read said, no, Thessalonians is 100% literal. It's not a metaphor. He's not drawing on Old Testament stuff. 
but that the, the verbiage used actually means that Christ will come and snatch us up and that we will fly up to God, that we will fly up to Christ, which I have no problem with. That would be great. You know, as a kid who was obsessed with comic books, I think flying would be so much fun, right? So is this text of ours tonight figurative, drawing on metaphors from the Old Testament as far as the exact details of Christ's coming and us meeting him on the clouds? Is it literal? We just don't know. And this language has created unnecessary confusion in the church, I think. You have people, many of you, many of us have had these moments where we obsess over these things, right? What is the timeline? I need to figure it out. I had one friend who went to a church, I'm not going to say the name of it, but the pastor became so enamored with end times theology and what this would look like, he preached for two and a half years on the book of Revelation. Imagine every Sunday just talking about the end times and when Jesus would come. Some of you think, yeah, fire, you know, I'm ready, sign me up. Um, I would get bored of that. See, guys, when we read these things, we need to understand something. The Bible is not meant to confuse us. The Bible is not a secret code to be cracked. So many people think of the Da Vinci Code, right? That there's something secret going on here. This book, this book is a gift from God to bring understanding and to bring grace into our everyday lives. So when we read a passage like this, let us not worry about exactly how and when. Let's look at what Paul is saying to us. Let's look at what scripture is revealing to us about Christ and who Christ is and what we can learn from that. So let us read this text again in light of all of these things I just mentioned and learn together. Verse 13, Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed. Church, we should not be uninformed as those who have no hope. Those who grieve like the rest of mankind. Why? Well, all of us know this. There is death and there is loss in life. If there's one thing that unites humanity, that everyone goes through, it's loss. It's pain and suffering. There is no argument there. We all experience loss and pain of some kind or another. The quote I always think of, it's from a book. I confess I haven't read the book, but I've seen the movie about you know, 50 times is the movie The Princess Bride. If you haven't seen it, just find it online. It's the best. And it's from the book also, but the line is, life is pain, highness. And anyone who says differently is selling you something. And everyone resonates with that quote because we get it. Life is hard and everyone experiences pain in this life. It's one unifying feature. But Paul says to you and to me, to the believers in Jesus Christ, we do not have to grieve like the rest of mankind when that pain comes. Because we have hope. Pain is not all there is. Suffering is not all there is. And he tells us and reminds us in verse 14. What is that hope? For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So that we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. We believe Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of God as we already talked about. And we believe he will bring those of us who believe in him with him. Sleep here as we kind of gathered means death. 
Paul uses the word sleep because it's not final for those who are in Christ. Church, let me just pause here for a second and remind you, you are an eternal being. You were made by God and designed to endure the pain and suffering now so that you would live forever with him. Think about that for a second. God made you and God made me to be eternal beings. And then verse 16, for God will indeed come down. For God will indeed return in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the hurt. And it will be with a loud command or a trumpet. It's not going to be a surprise where everyone just immediately disappears. It's going to be a loud command. It's going to be a loud trumpet. Everyone is going to be aware of his coming. I don't think it's going to be, we may be shocked, but we're all going to see it once it happens. And it says that those who are dead, those who are sleeping, will first rise at this trumpet. And then verse 17 gets really interesting. As if, as if all the dead rising wasn't interesting enough. Um, I mean, there's a, whole, there's a whole like zombie apocalypse thing happening here. Um, but it's really not that. It's those who are dead in Christ will go to be with him. And then after that, verse 17, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them, Christ and those who have already died in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Those who are left, those of us who have not died, those of us who are walking the earth at the time when Christ comes back, who are believing in him, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. Will we fly? Maybe. Will we disappear? Maybe. Will a giant hand come down and grab us? Maybe. <laughs> but will we go to be in God's presence? Yes. Will there be no more suffering and no more pain and no more tears? Yes. Will we be in the presence of the glory of God? Yes. Will we be made glorious in the way we were supposed to be without sin? Yes. Will it be for eternity? Yes and yes and yes and yes and thank you, Lord. Because that is good. And instead of remembering that promise, and instead of remembering the hope, everyone wants to know. We all need to know. We all need a theory. We all need a date. We all need to know the details. Many people look at the signs and want it to be soon. But that is not the point, church. The point is not to figure out the day. The point is not to figure out the hour. It's fine to know what you believe and why. It's fine if you're pre-tribulation or post-tribulation or amillennialist. Or it, it is good to know those things, those theological terms and distinctions people like to draw lines in. But that is not the point of this text. If you read this text, especially the whole book of 1 Thessalonians, but if you read this text, we see there's something bigger happening here. And it's not about the day or how, it's about why. Jesus will return and you and I will actually be in glory in God's presence forever. And so the question that faces you and I tonight is what does this do about our everyday life? What does this do to change how you interact with your family? What does this do to change how you interact with people at work? What does this do to change how you love your neighbor? And so this to me is what I think. 
If you don't like it, take it or leave it. Um, this is what I thought of, and this is what I wanted to share with you tonight. When I think about this, Jesus said this, Paul said this, even John says this, that we don't really know when it's going to happen, right? We just don't. Could be today. Could be tonight. That'd be pretty cool, huh? Don't have to worry about work this week. <laughs> uh, but we're not promised tomorrow, are we? Now, if we're not promised tomorrow and Christ could come back at any time, why are we so focused and worried about tomorrow? You ever wonder that? Why are we so focused, rushing through life, trying to get to something in the future that's not even promised to us? Why are we working for the weekend when we don't even know if the weekend will come? Why are we trying to get to the next thing? Why are we rushing through the present so much, trying to get to the next thing when Scripture tells us that that's not even promised to us? Church, I confess to you the reason I thought about this is because I'm guilty of this, right? I often am looking forward to the next thing. I am often looking forward to the thing I want to do more than what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Maybe some of you are also guilty of that. And some people think, well, if there's no tomorrow, then we need to rush, 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 right? Let's do everything we can today. But I actually disagree. I think, and I've come to believe, I think, that if there's no tomorrow, you know what I want to do? I want to slow down and enjoy today. I want to slow down and enjoy the little interactions I have with my wife and son. I want to slow down and enjoy the little interactions I get on Sunday nights with everyone. I want to slow down and enjoy the time I get to visit with people in the office about how their weekend was and what's going on in their lives. If I'm not promised tomorrow, I'm not going to rush through today. I am going to slow down and really live for what I'm doing here and now. Why in the world, church, do we ruin today by rushing and being anxious for something that may not ever come? And for the Christian, you and I, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Christ calls us to a joyful life. And when we are constantly living for the next day and rushing forward, there is no time for joy and to experience the joy of the Lord because we're relying on ourselves. How do we live out a passage like 1 Thessalonians 4 in everyday life? You know what it means for me? I need to slow down and focus on what I'm doing here and now and be joyful. I need to choose to be joyful in the spirit of God in the present moment to live in each moment that I am living as one who has hope. See, the hope of the Lord he's talking about here to the Thessalonian church is one that inflicts and changes everything that we do. Choosing to be joyful, choosing to be present in the moment can happen in anything. It can be in work and in school. It can be when you're cleaning the toilet. It can be when you're cooking. You know what I hate? I love Brussels sprouts, but I hate prepping them when you got to cut them and peel the leaf off and you cut. And I just hate doing little tedious cooking tasks like that sometimes. That can be a joyful moment in the Lord, knowing that I'm sitting there cutting Brussels sprouts and I can make it prayerful and thank the Lord for the farmer who grew these Brussels sprouts and thank the Lord for the rain that made these grow and how these will nourish and bless me and my family. Or I can just be rushing through and try to get through it as fast as I can with my old dull kitchen knife and then I end up cutting myself, right? Church, we can live in the moment in anything. 
You can choose the joy of the Lord. You can choose to focus on the hope God gives you and not worry about tomorrow at any time. Because choosing joy is something we do. It's something we decide to do because, and again, to me, this makes way more sense. We are not promised tomorrow. So why would I rush today with the things I've been given? If Christ can return any time, and I know that when Christ does return, I will be cared for and I will be safe and I will be with him forever. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I don't have to worry about the fears and the anxieties. I can just be living in the moment God has blessed me with. So when I read 1 Thessalonians, yeah, maybe we fly up. Maybe he comes down and grabs us. Maybe we fly on a cloud. I don't know. Maybe it's literal. Maybe it's metaphorical. Great. I know I'm going to be with Jesus. And when I read it, I look, and I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to go back to the, the passage just before the one we read in verse 11. Paul says, We urged you, beloved, to do so more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. And then he goes into this thing that says, We do not want you to be uninformed about those who have died, so that you may not grieve for others as those who have no hope. The hope of the Lord enables us to live peaceful, quiet lives. The hope of the Lord enables us to live joyful lives. The hope of the Lord enables you and me to live for today, to overcome anxiety and fear, to go about our business with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, we get what he means in verse 18 by wrapping all of this up. He says all of these things about Jesus returning and coming on the clouds and all of this stuff. And then verse 18, what does Paul say? Therefore, encourage one another. Encourage one another with these words. You have hope. You are not like those who fear death. If you believe in Jesus Christ and have claimed him as your Lord and Savior and believe he was who he said he was, then we are told that we have a hope that other people do not have. And we are not like those who fear death. So we have the freedom to focus on today, to live in the joy of Christ today, and to then, from that joy, go out and encourage other people with the hope we have found. Church, Paul is not giving us a timeline in this text. Paul didn't know either. He is pushing us, the church, the bride of Christ, toward a life of joy and a life of hope. He is pushing us towards a life of fulfillment. He is pushing us toward a life that is full of abundance like Jesus promised. And so for you and for me, we are called then to stand on the promises of Christ, that he will return for us. And we don't need to worry about when. It's been promised. You and I are called to encourage one another with this promise. And so may we stand on the promise of Christ. May we stand on the truth of Scripture and encourage one another with these words. Would you pray with me? God, I confess to you now, I do not live in the present enough. I'm often distracted, I'm often dissatisfied, I'm often wanting more or different. 
And yet, Lord, you remind me that I am called to live here and now. That I am not promised tomorrow, therefore, why would I spend any time worrying about tomorrow? Lord, this passage reminds us that you are good, that you have our futures secure and in your hands. And so, Lord, I pray then that we would remember these things, that when we read this passage, we would not worry about the time or the date, but that we would remember you are coming home, or you are coming back, rather, to bring us home. Lord, thanks for that. Thank you for new life, free from pain and free from suffering. And until that day comes, Father, may we rest in the moments you give us throughout our day, wherever we find ourselves, with whomever we find ourselves. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite everyone um, to respond to the word of the Lord. And um, I'd actually invite everyone, this uh, song I think calls us to stand. So why don't we stand together and um, meditate on these words and feel free to hum or even speak along. Built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, a solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Space. 